1: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, racist comments plague the University of New Hampshire, protests against hunting coyotes on the Cape, and the Paw Sox Stadium saga rages on. News from Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, and Cape Cod. Later in the show, getting accepted to a top Ivy League school is a dream come true for many high school students, but for a pair of scheming twins, it's not a fantasy, it's destiny. A good friend of mine refers to the central issue in this play is what stronger love or ambition. We talked to the playwright and Company One's director of the Shakespeare-inspired play, Peerless. But first, our regional news roundtable. Joining us from Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi there. Joining us from Cape Cod, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Kelly. And joining us from New Hampshire, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Hello, Arnie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you because... My theme for the first part of this discussion is sharks on land and in water. So let's begin with the Wongs on land. Up your way, Arnie. New Hampshire Representative Robert Fisher made some news when he resigned after some pressure for comments he made on a site that he created, which, well, misogynistic is probably the best way to put it. Anyway, there's been a big back and forth, back and forth, and it also involved another legislator, which I'll let you explain, um, who was not doing quite the same thing but made some comments that brought some attention. Bottom line was the head of your uh, New Hampshire State House said, well, it's bad behavior but probably not worth a sanction or having somebody resign, and in the end, though, this guy had to resign. Go ahead.
0: Okay, so mm. let me just start. I, I had a reporter on the air with me this week, and we were talking about this, and I want to make sure that everybody understands this story— about this republican representative representative fisher was uncovered by the daily beast and it was uncovered that he was the founder and moderator of something called the red pill and it is has about 200000 people that sort of participate in it. It is very misogynistic. It talks about rape in a positive way. It's just highly toxic, okay, everyone? But as he pointed out, I said, why did it require the Daily Beast to be able to uncover that one of our state reps was the founder and the moderator of this? And he said, Arnie, we don't have the dollars anymore to do the kind of heavy lifting you have to do to do this kind of investigation. And we're so grateful that the Daily Beast was able to uncover this. So when they uncovered this incredibly toxic stuff, A lot of people started banging the drum. Uh, The governor said this guy should resign. The speaker said this guy should resign. So instead they decided to hold some kind of a public hearing. But in order to create fair and balanced – notice I'm saying those words – they had to find a Democrat that they could accuse of doing something. And there is a freshman state representative named Representative Frost from Dover who writes highly – charged, emotional tweets. She's very sort of flashy on social media, and she uses the F word on occasion, and she's made some comments about the fact that there are more white Christian male terrorists than any other group, and, and of course it's offended all the white male Christians in the New Hampshire legislature. So they decided that they were going to lump her bad social media behavior with a couple of tweets with this guy who is the founder and moderator of this misogynistic Site that has all these thousands and thousands of people that go in and participate. So they lumped these two individuals together, and they decided to hold a public hearing. Well, one of the things they decided to do was they wanted to put both of them under oath. Well, Representative Fisher went under oath, and he basically said, you know, this stuff was taken out of context, you don't understand, I haven't been doing it for months, this was last year, this was not this year, and he made all kinds of sort of defense of his bad behavior, and Representative Frost, who also had a hearing, brought in an attorney, did not go under oath, and read a statement, okay? So let me set this at the stage. And it was the wildest, most incredible hearing. People were screaming, calling each other liars. A Republican state representative who called for the kill- killing Killing of Hillary Clinton was defending Representative Fisher, and we're all going, wait a minute, how can you even say this when you had bad behavior yourself? I mean, the thing just was totally out of control. It was like mud wrestling, all right? But this was a a public hearing. So it turns out that they decide— to then vote on these two state representatives and their behavior, they didn't separate them. They were were required by the leadership to lump the two together as if they were the same or equal to enforce and effect and offensiveness. But between the time that they had heard Representative Fisher speak under oath, a Democratic state rep who's an IT expert decided to put his IT expertise to good use, and he discovered. That Representative Fisher had not stopped being the moderator and participating in the Red Pills online site and that he, in fact, was being was in continuous motion on it. So, therefore, when he was under oath and said he was no longer associated with it, he lied. Mm. And you cannot believe this, everyone. But when he presented that information to the chairman of the committee, the chairman said, oh, I never opened it. I was afraid that maybe it was one of those poison emails that I shouldn't open, so I never saw it, and anyway, it's too late. Even though he produced plenty of documentation to show that he purged himself. So what ultimately happened was, by a very close vote, they decided to show no disciplinary action. But here's something even more amazing. It was a close vote. Obviously, the two should not have been wedded together. They refused to allow the minority of the committee to write a minority report mm. all right so not only was it outrageous but this is like what what are you who are you protecting well All of a sudden, because of the perjury charge, people started saying they were going to turn this over to the attorney general, that this had to be investigated. He lied under oath. And within about two or three hours of that, it turns out that Representative Fisher resigns. And uh, I will just share with you that the the Democratic leader said that's all we wanted. We wanted him to go. And I will share with you that's not what I personally want. If you lie under oath, actions have consequences. The attorney general should investigate.
1: Well, I did want to give uh, listeners a chance to understand what exactly was being said. You mentioned something of what the uh, Democratic legislator said, which is, you know, terrorists are usually white Christian men. She went on to say, men telling me to calm down and not take it hard are making me homicidal. So that was what she said. Here is what uh, Fisher, who has resigned at this point, said as part of his dialogue on this site. First of all, he said one line, just one line. The only things one needs for rape are roofies and duct tape. And people, when this was read out loud, at least gasped with horror as they should have. And he said he started the site, by the way, because he was frustrated with dating. So I guess he took it out. But to he the also extreme. makes
0: comments that at least one party in a rape is having a good time. I mean, I can't even go on to tell right. you how outrageous it is. Let me just share one more thing. At the end of the hearing, where they had a very close vote, they decided no minority report, and they decided to take no disciplinary action because remember they were wedding these two together. You could not separate them. They were undivided. The Women in the public hearing stood up and started screaming, Shame shame, shame. I'm telling you, this was an incredible moment. And yeah, there was a lot of shame in the room, but it turned out that it probably was the idea that he perjured himself that forced him to resign, not his behavior, and frankly, not at the, I think, the flawed behavior of leadership.
1: Well, Philip, I'm just noting the role of social media. Twitter is involved here. There's other websites involved here. And I'm wondering if we're looking for an remote influence from Washington, D.C., is that maybe this is what's happening, is that, you know, social media has become so highly charged because we're sort of in an atmosphere now where it's highly charged in general, at least from our politicians.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly part of what's at play here. And look, so much of our lives happen online, and that has implications for public officials that something that might be clearly read and forgotten as a joke about being homicidal in a person-to-person conversation can be construed as something different in a hearing like this, I think I would – to me when I hear this story, my, my lens kind of goes even bigger back to the 2016 presidential election, which among many, many other things was a referendum on what the public will and won't stand for when it comes to misogyny. And it turns out they will stand for a lot because here we have the winner of that election who had a lifetime's worth of on-the-record comments about women – who was the subject of you know, over 10 sexual harassment allegations, who was caught on tape talking about groping women and then passing it off as locker room talk. I think we as a country uh, need to look at ourselves in the mirror and think about the big picture cultural factors that allow a situation like Representative Fisher to happen in the first place. I'm not you know, getting him off the hook. I'm just saying there is a cultural thing here where tens of millions of people voted into the highest office in the land And on the record, misogynist. I mean, it's as simple as that. And what does that mean? And where is the red line for these voters who voted for Mr. Trump? And here we are on the ground level in a place like New Hampshire's
1: seeing similar things play out. So, Paul, the same question to you. I mean...
3: Yeah, I think certainly uh, social media in general has degenerated our, our level of civil discourse and you know, up to and including the office of President of the United States. And, uh, you know, one interesting outcome of this is that, you know, words and deeds uh, apparently have had consequences. This clearly was done in a very sloppy manner uh, in New Hampshire. And, and, you know, I was kind of fascinated because when you talk about free speech. And, and Arnie mentioned that they couldn't file a, a minority report, perhaps not officially, but you would imagine that they could have filed a minority report simply by writing an op-ed to one of the local newspapers or, or uh, oh. the local NPR or, or anyone. Uh, they could get the word out if they wanted to have a minority say. Of course, the story took a different direction with perjury. And so I, I guess that was rendered moot to a degree. But it is is interesting that people now I think feel emboldened to make comments that maybe just a very short time ago wouldn't have felt that way,
1: exactly, I just want to move on to uh Providence because there's so much bad behavior going on with the, with our representatives and and we're back Ooh, we're with you. The yes, Philip uh, the Providence City council president has uh been arraigned on charges including embezzlement. this doesn't look yeah. good.
2: I feel like I should introduce myself as your local corruption correspondent (laughs) because I'm always the guy talking about bad behavior in Providence. Yes, unfortunately, we have had yet another indictment on the Rhode Island political landscape, uh, this time on the Providence City Council. And I'm not even talking about Providence Council member Kevin Jackson, who was indicted last year for allegedly embezzling over $100,000 from a youth track team. And earlier this year, he was successfully recalled. I'm talking about a separate Providence City Council scandal, this time involving the president of the Providence City Council, Councilman Luis Aponte, uh, one of the most powerful men in the city, who has indeed been indicted on basically two felony charges of unlawful appropriation from his campaign fund embezzlement and two misdemeanor counts of unlawfully using campaign funds for personal use. I'm drawing from the reporting of my friend Dan McGowan at Channel 12 WPRI. Basically, for a lot of observers of Providence politics, this one was not hard to see coming. Mr. Aponte has had a lot of issues with campaign finance in recent months and years. I mean, this has been a thing that's hasn't uh, risen to the level of alleged criminal activity, but he's been in the news with kind of, you know, bad filings and, and questions about where money was going and whether there was intermingling between personal and campaign stuff. For the record he has yet to step down as the president of the city council and yet to step down as a city council person despite a 12 to 1 vote from his peers asking him to step down the mayor has said he should step down as president and um here we are in providence forever trying to escape our uh, reputation as a you know place where politicians behave badly and every one of these New indictments gets us back to square one or or worse.
1: So, Philip, is there no morals clause that can force this guy to be removed if he's not going to step down?
2: Apparently not, or at least I haven't heard of one yet. He still enjoys at least some support from his constituents. He held a press conference the other day, and it made news that a couple people he represents— a neighborhood on the south side of Providence. A couple supporters were there wearing T-shirts that said, quote, it's a south side thing you wouldn't understand. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. Um, so, you know, and there is a lot of – I've seen some interesting debate about the kind of distrust that people on the south side have toward law enforcement and – um you know, this has certainly generated a lot of conversation, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon because Councilman Aponte, who you know, claims his innocence and, of course, is innocent until proven guilty, um, is saying basically I'm not going anywhere.
1: I don't really want to spend much time on this, but I do want to note that the mayor uh, issued a statement saying Providence has worked so hard to overcome this stereotype. And today's indictment of Council President Luis Aponte proves that we still have a long way to go to ensure ethics and transparency to our residents. And again, that's from the WPRI report. Oh, my God, you can't make this stuff up.
2: As a young person, relatively young person, I'm in my early 30s, who's grown up in Providence, I want to believe in our system of government. But these stories year after year after year, and I don't even remember a quarter of them because I'm too young to – it makes it really hard to remain idealistic about the system of government here as much as I want to.
1: Can I I just ask a
0: question? It seems like Aponte, who's been there since 1998, these stories have been swirling around for years. I'm going to go back to the idea that these people kind of knew him you know? They know he makes small change to be in this position. They know that the amount of money that he's fooling around with the campaign finance funds is small change. And they're kind of looking at it going, well, politicians are kind of corrupt anyway, so what's the big deal? And I think that in in a bizarre way, you have to sort of ask yourself, what is it about Providence, and maybe all of us, that we're willing to sort of look the other way because we don't think it rises to the level of something that should be offended by? And the assumption that we now have about political players, basically double dipping is something that has almost become a norm. Not that we want it so, but that is, I think, the level of
1: frustration. They knew it, and they voted for him. I want to remind people who I'm talking to, this is our regional news roundtable. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and with me is Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island, and Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, and Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson in New Hampshire. Okay, so I promised uh, sharks in the water. Let's go to you, Paul Pronovo, because uh, you're in the area where now there are more and more sharks, but now this is really interesting. There's a big charity and a big event that has to take into account whether or not the shark population is so significant that it can prevent having activities in Provincetown.
3: Yeah, uh, this is interesting, and of course we've talked uh, at length about the sharks that have been a uh, growing population in, in the waters of, of Cape Cod and the islands over the last couple of years. It's pretty simple math. The seal population has increased. They're a primary food source for uh, great white sharks, uh, and therefore the shark population has increased. And over the past year, maybe even two years, not only have the numbers of sharks increased, but their sort of roaming area, their habitat in local waters has has grown as well. So they're going from what had been just basically a very narrow spot in Chatham. Now, with so many sharks, we have a, a few dozen sharks now that have been tagged by the state. So they have uh, pingers on them and they can track them. They're seeing that the sharks are moving around far more than they were when they first arrived, and that's bad news for places like Provincetown. And in particular, there's an event that happens just after Labor Day. It's been happening for 30 years, and it's called the Swim for Life. And it's a charity event, swim and paddling event, that's raised more than $4 million for causes related to AIDS. It was started by um, a local artist activist by the name of Jay Critchley, and it's been a very, very popular event for, like I said, many, many years. Now, people are having to think about, well, what about the sharks? Because they are seeing sharks right around that time of the year, pinging in the, in the very track of where this swim takes place. And Provincetown Harbor is fairly deep. And that's, frankly, a perfect habitat for sharks because they like to come up and uh, take their prey from, you know, from deep waters and catch them by surprise. So I have to say that nothing has happened uh, at the Swim for Life related to sharks. Uh, in fact, uh, it's been a very, knock on wood, successful and safe event for all of these 30 years. And only once in the time that we've been talking about sharks has there been an incident involving a human. Uh, a man from Colorado was bitten off the coast of Truro. but. All other uh, years we and times we haven't seen any incidents, so you know it's a concern it's not I think a deep fear, but it's something that now folks here have to take into consideration and so Jay Critchley and others are considering their options. I would imagine one thing to do was perhaps would be perhaps uh, move the dates of the event to Mm. a time of the year. I mean, like, the water's cold right now, but that's good news because the sharks aren't necessarily back here in in big numbers. So maybe move it more to Memorial Day than Labor Day. Or other things that they're looking at in terms of uh, safety. They have uh, a company in Australia that has this sort of... uh, buoy that you drop in the water and it sends out a sonar that you can basically detect a shark shape and that would send an alert so you could you could address things uh in real time uh so we'll see what they do ultimately but uh it's definitely a concern
1: uh, for the swim for life and, and frankly for all sorts of events now um, and there are 400 swimmers from around the world, we should note. So this is a big deal. And I would imagine uh, other kinds of event planners will be looking to see what happens here because we're hearing about whether or not it seems like there's more sharks in the water. If, it feels as though we're always hearing about um, more shark attacks and more sharks in the water, not just on the Cape, of course, but but many other places. And so I'm hyper alert to it maybe in ways I wasn't in the past.
0: Can I ask a question, Paul? So the, the reason why the seal's coming down because of climate change and the warming waters. so that this has kind of now become a shark buffet. And while you look at the past and say, but there weren't a lot of sharks before, and yet there wasn't a lot of climate change before, the water wasn't so warm before. So the past is not necessarily a good predictor of what's going to be happening now. And I know you can't eliminate risk, but you can limit risk. And the idea of moving it to a another time of year Is kind of a win-win. If you can't afford that $80,000 buoy, you can perhaps afford doing something that makes more sense because, again, they don't like the cold water. And yet the waters have been warming, which explains why they're showing up. So I think so many people are beginning to realize you have to start making informed Mm -hmm. decisions. And you can't look at, oh, but five years ago or ten years ago. No, that's not going to tell you what's going to happen this time
3: you're absolutely right and for the record one of the things that people point to is federal protections on seal hunting which used to be legal uh, back into the you know, up to and including the 70s and into the 80s but now seals are protected in great numbers so the populations were naturally going to grow Everywhere, but but there may be something too to the, the warmer waters, and certainly Cape Cod lends itself, you know, sort of that rocky coast and, and a lot of uh, fish food uh, because the seals are feeding on the fish, uh, so that's why they're here. Um, but you touched on something, and I think it's sort of you know the undercard of, of this story is that the awareness has grown considerably here and and education uh, has grown considerably. And I think a lot of folks here on the Cape are are trying to do things, uh, you know, in, in this case, for example, with the Swim for Life, they're looking to take proactive uh, you know, decision-making here as opposed to reactive. And, and they're looking at places, you know, we mentioned Australia, uh, but Cal- the Southern California coast offers great lessons. Uh, South Africa offers great lessons. And in and around the Cape, uh, the, the, the folks here, uh, Harbor Masters, Coast Guard, uh, the local police and fire and others, they're looking at all of those examples because they don't have to, you know, draft a plan really um, from scratch. They, they can follow a script.
1: Um, Before we move off uh, from the Cape, Paul, I want you to address another animal story you've got going on down there. Um, A little tension now around a petition uh, to um, really uh, ban um, shooting coyotes. Um, And, you know, there's a a big population. There's a lot of people calling for it now. Um, But uh, coyotes have been hunted there legally for some time. Uh, So talk about that, if you will.
3: Yeah, this is another. uh, uh, If I guess, who knew story? Uh, I certainly didn't know. um, I, I, I have to say, I did know that there was hunting. In the National Seashore, and, and the National Seashore, I, I think most folks are aware, is, is that uh, stretch of protected land that goes um, from, from East Ham and around the outer bank of the Cape all the way to Provincetown. Uh, it was created in 1961 by President Kennedy, uh, preserving beaches, preserving the land, and really has has created a, a really spectacular natural habitat uh, for all sorts of, of life. And uh, coyotes being among them. Uh, and in fact, on the Cape, uh, the, the coyote population has been growing explosively in recent years. Uh, and in particular, in the national seashore, where you can really roam free, I, I think it's, it's been growing. But what I didn't know was that coyotes were getting hunted I did know hunting took place, and I knew they hunted everything from from deer to turkeys, uh, but i didn 't know uh, that coyotes were were uh, on on the list uh, and I guess I thought well why why would that even be something and, and that kind of gets to what this survey is about that coyotes uh, aren 't a food source It's it 's trophy hunting almost exclusively, and that is why about three thousand people have uh, signed a petition calling on the Cape Cod National Seashore to ban the hunting of carnivores in the seashore footprint. Um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, the hunting has always been allowed, and, and the position uh, of, of the just uh, the, the now former uh, superintendent of the seashore, George Price, has been, well, there's no reason to stop it. We're going to allow it. Um, he just left. He just retired uh, just a couple weeks ago, and I think that's probably why uh, folks are taking another shot at trying to get this banned. Um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, there's certainly a lot of interest in in, uh, in in coyotes and and, and other wildlife uh, there's a there's a, an expert down here by the name of uh, Jonathan way who's a biologist and, and works as a part-time ranger uh, as part of this petition in addition to banning coyotes folks want to make uh, John way uh, full-time and allow him to study uh, coyotes um, he's already done a lot of groundbreaking work uh, he's he's uh, 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 done a lot of work on this uh, creature called the coy wolf for example which is a hybrid uh, wolf and coyote Uh, so they want to allow john way to you know cut loose and and to focus on this and to protect the animals Um, again as i said we'll see where it goes all
1: right let me move to back to new hampshire where all kinds of stuff is going on Uh, um racist incidents at the university of new hampshire arnie uh this is now there was a town hall uh very recently and but uh your note here is that it didn't uh, doesn't appear to have eased tension so first of all, it's because of graffiti that's all over the campus uh, that appears that some of it appeared freshly after the first indication of it
0: well remember this is a very this is a very white state, New Hampshire. OK, it's a very white state. It also is the state that uh, was the first one to give uh, Donald Trump a win. I need to sort of set the stage here. And uh, people have been saying that really since the fall, they feel this sort of rise in tension. stickers, the N-word, increased graffiti. People are feeling more and more uncomfortable. And just like we're seeing on the national stage, it seems like you know, the license to be polite or the idea that somehow you should respect others, seems to be dissolving. And then everyone thinks that whatever comes into their head is something they can say. So as a result, they held a a three-hour town hall, everyone. And it was incredible. And people were talking and screaming at each other. And then right after the three-hour town hall, their turn to be on Sunday, a message board on a freshman dormitory uh, that read, be an ally, obviously, they're trying to sort of, you know, bridge the fight and bridge the anger, uh, was was slightly erased and in a ballpoint pen and written across it was the N-word. So it obviously wasn't seeping in. And then, of course, it's really easy to sort of blame the sororities and the fraternities. And apparently the liaison from the from the sort of the, the student uh, the student activity board uh, posted something on Facebook that was totally inappropriate. It showed uh, someone in a Native American headdress with black face and she was standing in the photograph and she was asked to step down, even though she profusely apologized so everybody is on edge. everybody is sort of blaming everyone. Uh, college campuses are microcosm of what 's happening I think with the rest of us. The question is how do you celebrate? openness and diversity, and allow differing opinions. But when does a differing opinion border on things that are outright racist and outright outrageous? And I think that's a really difficult line to draw. But I think in some ways, if we don't start drawing it at the college campuses, it'll trickle
1: up into the rest of us. Is there a reason that, or has anybody pinpointed, why UNH as opposed to any of the other schools in New Hampshire?
0: Probably it's probably it's the most diverse. It's the most politically engaged. I mean, the, the most affluent, the most diverse. I mean, yeah, there are pockets of activity in Keene and Plymouth, but, but UNH is where it all happens. I mean, let's be honest. It's the big driver in the state. And we're a tiny state, Cali. I mean, we have 1.3 million people. We're, you're not talking about a lot of opportunities here. So, uh, And I think this is a place where people really um, mark out their territory, and uh and now what's happening is is that Huddleston, who is the, the, the president of the college, who's actually leaving, is trying to figure out what it is that he can do to establish some kind of stability here. Uh, I hope he comes up with it, because if he does, he'll get cloned.
2: Hmm. I, I think the answer to the why UNH question is the why not UNH. It's hmm. this these kinds of things are happening everywhere. Thank I mean you. to pick exactly one right. example. I teach part-time at the Rhode Island School of Design, one of the most liberal and diverse and international schools you'll find anywhere in the U.S., and they had a swastika incident in one of their bathrooms. And, of course, that wasn't an isolated incident on college campuses. I mean, I think if you tuned in to, you know, we've had incidents at Providence College, and I I think it's just happening everywhere. Um, And I think, uh, you know, just to... Whatever talk there was about us being a post racial society after oh, President yeah. Obama was elected, I mean, I, I would just, you know, think to how we'll look back on this 10 or 15 or 20 years in the yeah, future. So we are, this country is a raw nerve right now. Think about the scenes coming out of New Orleans. Uh, and uh, where was it that that Richard Spe- uh, New Orleans, where they are taking down Confederate right. statues, oh, that and was Richard Spencer's you know torchlit rally uh, to defend one of those, which was like a time capsule from an earlier era. Um, and think of all the things that were stirred up at, at the you know the campaign rallies last year. This country is is really raw right now, and unfortunately, like like Arnie said, college campuses are. reflection of that and for various reasons, you know, a pressure cooker, you know, even more than than the average place.
1: I just, I asked the question, I mean, you know, I'm not naive, but Paul, um, what the millennial uh, folks will say to you and the generation younger than they is, we don't carry over with the same problems that you old people had. We left that all behind. We know Mm. there's differences. We appreciate differences. We embrace them. And yet, as I speak around the country on uh, college campuses, this stuff is everywhere.
3: It is everywhere, and um, it, it's unfortunate that it, you know th- things. As much progress as we have made, and, and let's be clear, we have made progress. Uh, we perhaps haven't made as much as we think, and and these attitudes are out there. Uh, you know, I was thinking as as Phil said. Uh, you know you, you could go right down the list of colleges where where examples have happened, and I remember right after the election, for example, at Wellesley Co- College, uh, yep. you know, two young men in a pickup truck drove onto the campus and were trolling people and yelling and and uh, you know obscene things and and uh, racially charged things uh, as they drove along and i I thought you know. <laughs>
1: Just FYI, some of that was not exactly as characterized, but the the gist of it was. Go ahead. Fair <laughs> you enough. Know, and you and, know. and
3: uh, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, these things are happening everywhere, and I and I I have to wonder if you know if, if maybe perhaps, and this is my uh, glass half full hope, uh, that maybe when a, a swastika gets put on a wall in a bathroom in a college, it's because a kid is looking to get a rise out of people and to draw attention and not really fully grasping what the impact of that might have meant to a generation that experienced that in real life. And, and, and things of that nature. I wonder if this is more attention-grabbing, knowing that certain symbols are taboo and therefore they're using them and not really getting the point of what it is. At least it, I hope that that's the case.
2: No, yeah. and I think that's a good point, and I don't have the answer to this, but I think we do have to ask in the media, how do we handle this? I mean, that RISD student made, you know, one swastika and it became national news. I mean, in terms of mm-hmm. the bang for that person's buck, in terms of the amount exactly. of effort that went in, I mean – I I honestly don't know. I think maybe it is news, but on, on the other hand, is is the kind of breathless media coverage of that uh counterproductive? I don't know what but, the answer is, but, but there's had, no doubt that that one thing, one small incident can become major news and and the people doing this kind of thing know that.
1: I don't think it's the reporters. Um job not to cover. Um, now, you can, yeah. co- you, can, you can call out whether, quote, unquote, it's breathless or not in terms of its interpretation. But I do right. think it's the universities and the students' job to figure out how they are going to address it. So, uh, in fact, the coverage is about something else, really, about yeah. addressing it. So I think that's where we are. Um, I just want
0: to go back to something mm-hmm. Paul said from before. I think social media has become an echo chamber for hate, And I think the other thing is, is not only is it the breathless media that's going to be reporting the story, but when you go to social media and you end up in your silo and you hear, you hear yourself being repeated and you hear yourself being supportive and you're in a place where nobody's sort of challenging what the heck you're saying. And we've stopped really teaching history. We don't teach geography. We're looking at civics. When we're looking at all these paucities that we have made in investing in young people, you're getting the result of that lack of education. I mean, what they're, what they're saying is not only what they hear in social media. Might have been what they heard at the dinner table.
1: Well, that's you know, true. But but, but, but I will also of- say that social media can also be an asset for reaching and for you know being activists in a positive way. So we, it's not just the medium. We have to figure out uh, how we deal with what the message is, however it is being distributed among young people. So let, my, me, let, my, me, let me put an end there cause I, <laughs> because, Philip, I want to yeah. get to Paw Sox and find out where are oh, we yeah. with the Paw Sox, oh, yeah. the stadium. They were supposed to stay there. Then now they're moving. And what's happening? And now they're trying to get a stadium.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. So uh, many of your listeners will know that the the Red Sox AAA affiliate, the Pawtucket Red Sox, are based in Rhode Island. And Pawtucket is the home of the longest game in baseball history, 33 innings, and there's a long history of baseball in Pawtucket. And anyone who grows in Rhode Island like I did has memories of going to McCoy Stadium and seeing the fireworks on July 4th and all that. Uh, A couple years ago, there was kind of an all-out PR blitz to move the Paw Sox to Providence and to build a new stadium,
1: big there. PR yeah. blitz. Go ahead, a big PR blitz. <laughs> we I, talked, I think about we talked about it. We probably talked about it on this yeah. show. Yeah.
2: and that fizzled out for various reasons. Among them, unfortunately, one of the the main cheerleaders of, of that uh, that campaign uh, died unexpectedly in the middle of it, and for other reasons too, that it just kind of fell apart. Uh, here we are, two years later. And uh, Pawsack's ownership has now put forward a new plan to keep the team in Pawtucket, but to build a new stadium. And to do that, they want uh, a significant public uh, kick-in of money that they say the state will get back. It's a total of $38 million between the city and the state. The governor supports it. The Speaker of the House is a little more wary what interests me, and maybe I'm just a cynical Rhode Islander, is the team the other day released a one-minute advertisement talking about how much history they have in Pawtucket and how much they love Pawtucket and Pawtucket this, Pawtucket that. Uh, and for me, one of the quotes from the video was, for more than 40 years, our heart has been in Pawtucket. Let's keep it that way. I mean, this isn't the world's uh-huh. biggest problem, but I'm saying – You know, I was there two years ago (laughs) when the, the mayor of Pawtucket had to beg you guys. To keep the team there.
1: And because and I, I only think- have seconds left, let me just say this. I remember when they said, let's let 38 Studios come and we'll make our money back. Okay, let's hear from <laughs> Paul and Arnie really quickly about well, really this. Really quickly,
3: I'll just say that the strategy <laughs> uh, that the Red Sox employed in Fort Myers, Florida, to get JetBlue Park built by uh, the county down there, is something that they tried in Rhode Island. And it sounds like, uh, so far, Rhode Island's not blinking.
1: All right, uh, Arnie, got, you got to weigh in on this. One? Build me a bridge, build me <laughs> a water infrastructure.
0: Don't build me something for baseball. Sorry, sweetheart. <laughs> I know I'm 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 not good on this. You don't you don't you don't get to my soul. And if it's good for Pawtucket, it's good for Pawtucket. But you know what?
1: Someone else can fund the baseball. All right. Well, there you have it. There. Uh- <laughs> Philip, I don't think uh, we're we're getting too much support here. (laughs) Maybe I don't know. It could be. It could work. But I. But I'm with Philip on this. That was a huge campaign about moving before, and I. I'm not over that yet. I'm still a little. little,
2: It's a little insulting. I mean, (laughs) do they not think? We have memories that go past two years. I will add one thing from the ad, and this is a little hyperbole. They say that the stadium will, quote, transform the economy of an entire region. Count me slightly skeptical of that. Yeah, I say
1: say spread around the Italian food and you can do the same job. But that's my opinion. (laughs) All right. Thank you all for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Ciao. Paul Pronovo is the editor of the Cape Cod Times. Arnie Arneson is the host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. And Philip Isle is a freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. Coming up... High school-age twins dead set on getting into the country's most prestigious college. How far will they go to assure their dreams? We talk to the playwright and director of Peerless, a Shakespeare-inspired tale of murder and mayhem. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.